This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. The great thing about D.C. is how close it is to West Virginia. That is not something anybody else has ever said. Do we have a rough plan for this week's? Just talk about recreational opportunities in the Harper's Ferry area. (laughs) Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Matthew Iglesias uh, joined, as usual, by uh, my colleague Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein for another special debate edition. Um, Fortunately, there will not be any more of these, one hopes, but... For now, at least. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. A, there's 23 days left. Or we, we could add one no, more. No, there's right? 19 days oh, left. Well, see, I have no Next idea. year, yeah. 10 months from now, there will be debates for the Virginia special governor's election, and you can expect some special weeds coverage. There will that. be more debates Not in really. America, and we will talk about On some Facebook. of them. But for now, there are no more <laughs> presidential debates, and um, in some sense, the election will end on election day. Uh, but in another sense, <laughs> Donald Trump— Another truer sense. Donald Trump is at least purporting that he is very concerned that the election will be stolen through fraudulent means. And it was put very squarely to him by, by Chris Wallace at last night's debate. You know, uh, Chris Wallace, Fox News moderator, I would say a conservative-leaning guy, um, but, you know, was trying— As you could hear in every economic policy question. Right. And, and Wallace was, I would say, trying to give Trump an opportunity to sort of put some of this behind him by saying, we're going to be on the lookout for problems, but, like, America is great and— you know, win or lose, whatever. And he did not say that. He said he wants to keep us in suspense and we'll have to see what happens. And that generated a lot of, it dominated headlines uh, out of the debate uh, in newspapers in a way that frankly surprised me a little bit uh, since Trump has been saying this consistently for weeks. Um, but, you know, sometimes I, I misunderestimate <laughs> what's going to shock other people. So uh, two things I think are interesting here uh, about what has happened from debate one to debate three. Uh, In debate one, Hillary Clinton went into that debate leading Trump by 1.5 points in the pulse. By debate three, on the eve of debate three, it was 7.1 points. So it was a huge shift in polling from debate one to debate three. Across that same period of time, Donald Trump's faith in the legitimacy of the democratic process has really declined. So in debate one, it's easy to forget. He was asked, they both were asked, will you honor the results of the election? He said, absolutely, no problem. Debate Two, he began to dip his toe into the waters of maybe this democratic uh, processing isn't really working and said that if he was elected, he promised he would put his opponent in jail. By debate three, he not only said the election was rigged, but and I feel like people are missing this. He said part of the way the election was rigged was that Hillary Clinton should have been put in jail before the election. And so the very fact of her being able to run against him for the nomination or for the presidency was itself evidence of rigging. <laughs> and so, so I, do, I, I do want to point out that, one, we've had a lot of rigging creep from, from Trump, also a lot of jail creep. Not only was he going to imprison Clinton, but it should have been done before. But also there, there is a very expansive 
nature to the argument Trump is making. It's rigged because the media is reporting too much on things Trump said in the past uh, that he doesn't like. It's rigged because Hillary Clinton isn't already in jail. It's rigged because of things that he believes people might do in the future. It's just kind of rigged all over. And Clinton sort of pointed this out, but he is a guy with a conspiracy theorist personality. He is an anti-vaxxer. He believes climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. And I think this is sort of part and parcel of it. To to Trump, everything is a grand conspiracy meant to um, keep him and and, and those he believes are are part of his tribe down. One of the things I found, aside from threatening not to accept the results of of the um, election, which is obviously, which I found more surprising than Matt did, I think because of like this escalation. One of the things I understood less about that than the previous iterations of this was which audience this was hitting. So with the, you know, put Clinton in jail, that was all over Breitbart. Like that was clearly like something his base is really excited about. You know, they're the chance of lock her up. If you go to Breitbart this morning, there is no mention of this will keep you in suspense. It's everywhere in the media. It's oh, in all really? these news sources oh, that Donald Trump generally dislikes very much. So you could think, well, well why is he doing this? This is, you know, riling up folks, um, folks and kind of like who are reading these more mainstream publications. Maybe it's for the base. But then you go to Breitbart and there's like no like I just pulled it up a second ago. The top story is something about Hillary Clinton saying no more naps. Um, no more naps. <laughs> no more naps. Hillary Clinton previews final campaign stretch. That is currently at um, 11 a.m. Oh, my God. They have a flashing orange. No they more naps. They do have naps. a flashing orange. That's, no more naps. Why can't we do that on our homepage? I'll, I'll, I'll work on the <laughs> graphics. We'll figure this out. Um, anyways, you like scroll through this. More sad Republicans attack well, Trump. Exclusive. General Mike Flynn. Trump's, quote, unbelievable victory is, quote, exactly what we yeah. needed. So, but, but wow. this is... This was surprising to me. Like, I expected if you're going to do this thing that is going to play very negatively with the with kind of mainstream media, you'd expect there'd be a reason for it, that you'd be playing to a base, that you'd be getting people riled up. You'd be kind of setting the stage for, you know, some kind of pushback after the election. It really seems to me, I think it's something you and Matt have both written about, that it gives Trump too much credit to say this is like a strategy of his. That yeah. There's like this driving like the Jilling Hillary thing, like I see the strategy there. I see how that appeals to his base. Um, questioning whether he'll accept the election results, I, I, I don't know how how to explain that in a strategic way. So, so I do have a theory about this. Uh, the, it's a bit twofold. One of one of the theories is that we are. I think embedded in that that argument is the idea that Trump is executing a campaign strategy here. I don't think that's what he is doing. I think he's executing a personal uh, – whether you want to say it's a personal or a personal brand strategy, Trump's primary goal in life is for people to not think he is a loser. I mean that is that is what motivates him in the world. And what he's doing is setting up a, an argument where at least he can tell himself and be surrounded by a cocoon of other people who will agree that he didn't lose the election. It was stolen from him by the media, by everyone else. But the other thing that, that I think is part of that here is this is one way in which you see – you can see the effects of Trump's complete uh, – lack of institutional ties to the Republican Party or government or public service more generally. When you have other politicians who run these races, take John Kerry. Um, In 2004, there is some evidence that John Kerry was inclined to buy into the idea that Ohio was somehow stolen from him. 
he he certainly toyed with it. But he never ended up going anywhere near it. He conceded swiftly. He, he let it go. And there are probably a lot of reasons for that. But one reason is that John Kerry was a serving U.S. senator. He needed to retain the esteem of his colleagues. He had things that he would want to do in the future, like be secretary of state in, in the next Democratic administration. There were there were reasons for him not to try to torch the political system and also his reputation within it. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't have that. He he has nothing in politics he is fighting for after this moment. Uh, if he doesn't win the presidency, the best he can have is a very intense, motivated fan base who is angry that he didn't win the presidency and still committed to the Donald Trump brand. So a, a lot of, I think, politicians, when they lose an election because of who they see as their peers, because of whose endorsements and legitimacy and validation they want, and also because of what their future career ambitions are. They have reason, um, and, and also because of what their past loyalties are, they have reason to act honorably and act with the best interests of, of the systems and even themselves in mind. Trump just doesn't. He just has a really different incentive set. And I think you see it coming out here. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. But you know, the, the other thing about this is that Trump has attracted a level of uh, media scrutiny and harshness about what he says that most politicians don't have, right? So so Scott Walker, way back in August uh, 2015, he gave a speech at, at Virginia to like fire up the conservative base in which he said that Hillary Clinton should be disqualified from running for president of the United mm. States. And this achieved Scott Walker's tactical goal of being written up in Breitbart as great. Scott Walker catches fire in Virginia was the headline. Hillary Clinton should be, quote unquote, disqualified from being president because Scott Walker is very conservative, but he's also a, a dull, bland Midwesterner. Mm -hmm. So he was trying to make himself more exciting. And it, and it worked and it did not generate stories from mainstream political reporters that were like, Scott Walker is toying with destroying the underpinnings of American democracy to the extent that it was covered at all. It was covered as Scott Walker is trying to make himself 
seem more exciting to the conservative base. Um, then we had another iteration of this in in the January 13 Republican primary debate. Uh, they sort of all the Republican candidates like took wax at Hillary over the email stuff. Jeb Bush said she'd be a national security mess, which was like a low energy Jeb thing to say. <laughs> Marco Rubio, who's a little bit of like a, a more skilled politician than Jeb Bush, said Hillary Clinton should be disqualified from running for president over this. And everybody clapped and we know ultimately he, he lost. But it was the same Scott Walker strategy. But again, it was not written up as like Marco Rubio is undermining the legitimacy of, of the American political system in part because like the circumstances were different. But like this is what Donald Trump wound up saying it was like, oh, Hillary Clinton shouldn't have been allowed to run. But that's not what people yeah. are writing up today. I mean, I, I think I'm making a somewhat idiosyncratic point about his disqualifying creep that is related to him wanting to put Hillary Clinton in jail. But people are, are, are writing up something these guys didn't say, which is that he is proactively trying to discredit the results of the election and also proactively saying that he may not concede even if he gets fewer votes and fewer right. electoral well, college I mean, they votes. Can see, but I mean, so again, like, so Scott Walker, I mean, millions of Republican governors, they put laws in place like voter ID restriction laws with the, we all know, right? It's a fake rationale that these laws are needed to prevent widespread voter fraud. But then like when the Supreme Court threw a half dozen of these laws out saying, no, sorry, this is just illegal racial discrimination. They didn't turn around and say like, fair enough, you caught me. I was just BSing. They were like, oh no, we're going to have voter fraud. So like Trump is taking it seriously, mm -hmm. right? And like I, I, there is a real difference. I 100% agree with this. Like just like Hillary Clinton, you have to have a public position and a private <laughs> position. Um, I really think like lying in politics is, you know, it's not the best thing in the world, but it's also not the worst thing in the world. And like Donald Trump following the logic of this stuff is genuinely worse than people just kind of like kidding around for, for shits and giggles. But like Mitch McConnell put forward a national voter ID uh, amendment to comprehensive immigration reform, where again, if you understand Congress, the reason Mitch McConnell did this was to try to mess up the gang of eights like solidarity on the amendment process. But his stated reason for this amendment was that we had to prevent the widespread voter fraud that is happening in the United States of America. He's filed amicus briefs attesting to the fact that it's really important to stop this voter fraud. Um, and I have never seen anybody say that like Mitch McConnell is like seriously trying to undermine faith in the integrity of American elections because we give him as professionals, we give him the courtesy of assuming that he's just lying. Right. Um, and Trump sort of doesn't get that courtesy. Right. And it's the, the flip side of his like realness and authenticity is that when he says things, we take him uh, very, very literally on them. Um, and it is frightening. I mean, because Mitch McConnell, for all his legislative antics, does not nobody thinks right that if um, uh, Blunt loses the Senate election in Missouri, that Mitch McConnell is going to actually say that the election was stolen by voter fraud in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. He will like file amicus briefs to that effect if he can get people purged from the voter rolls in advance. But like he's just trying to win, whereas we don't know what Trump is trying to do. But I don't think it's just that Trump gets different treatment. Like he's legitimately saying like crazier things than than other Republicans are willing to say, like they might hint at. But I think there's like, like Ezra was saying, there's like a difference between 
saying someone should be disqualified, which could be read as they should be disqualified because they don't seem trustworthy because they did this versus like they committed a crime and they should be in jail and I plan to jail them <laughs> if I win. Like you see that you saw I feel like you saw this this summer when you um, with refugees where you had governors coming out saying I, I'm not going to let um, Syrian refugees settle in my state. And then Trump ratchets up the ante saying we should not allow any Muslims in the country. So I don't I think it's generally true. Well, he now says he never said that. Well, so <laughs> never mind then. It's, I think it is true what you're saying, that some of the seeds of this are set in the larger Republican Party. And you could probably look at this across a lot of issues where there was kind of this groundwork laid. But I don't think it's the case that we just started taking Trump more seriously when he said things, that he legitimately said different things, that other competitors in the race, that other Republican politicians we're willing to move in the direction of, but not go quite as far so, so as he I, was going. So I think two things are true here and both are important. So so one, it is a skill and also a learned habit in politics to know where the line is. Um, and the line, I think, as Matt is pointing out, is often drawn a little bit arbitrarily, right? You can uh, discredit the legitimacy of the vote in a kind of, you know, semi-quiet way, in a way where you're actually trying to disenfranchise people. So you're you're folks who win more elections. And somehow that is absorbed as the two sides, you know, fighting more or less within the rules to to to, to gain advantage, even though it's a, a genuinely, I think, quite despicable thing. But you can't once you lose, you lose. Like it's it's over. Uh, Trump doesn't know where that line is. A, a lot of Republican politicians do. I think you saw this, by the way, in his abortion answer last night, where he was being what what Republican politicians say is something that implies that, yes, they would like Roe v. Wade overturned, but not quite that, of course, that will happen as a mechanical result of electing me to office. But he just kind of doesn't know how to finesse any of that. So he just gets up and says, well, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll nominate three justices. And obviously, that would be the outcome of well, that. Well, it's like when he said, <laughs> I'm going to appoint justices who will uphold the Second Amendment. And then he even caught himself and was like, well, actually, they'll uphold all the amendments. <laughs> but there's like, but the Second, right? He doesn't, right, he, but, does, he doesn't know what the point he's trying to make. Well, this so is that, like so we that's, talked about last week with the lines, but, right? But like, to make one other point on this, so so yeah, so there's one issue where Trump doesn't know how to how to stop or where to stop. But the other thing that that I think is true is that, and, and this really goes to Matt's point, it is important. This knowing where to stop thing is a shared coded game of elites. Um, Mitch McConnell knows where to stop. I think I know where Mitch McConnell will stop. You know, there's like a whole thing if you're if you're professionally in politics. Kind of everybody gets what the the language is really saying and what the boundaries are and what the little sort of coded messages are in the whole thing. We all have our decoder rings. The Republican base does not. The Republican base, the actual voters, and this is what led to Trump to a large degree. They heard all this stuff. They heard about what Barack Obama was doing to destroy the country. They heard about how Obamacare was the end of freedom. They heard about how Barack Obama may not have been born in this country, may not be a legitimate, a legitimate president at all. And they thought – Damn, like this is really bad. They heard about, you know, all the terrible things that were happening because of immigration and they don't know where to stop. They didn't know the parts where people were kidding or just indulging them or just trying to get a momentary advantage. And that led to Trump. Um, that led to them nominating the guy who seemed to have a an agenda and a style that was proportionate 
to the kinds of problems that everybody else in Republican politics were telling them existed. And Donald Trump is an authentic avatar of his base. He also doesn't know where the line is. He also doesn't know what to believe and what not to believe. And so he would go further than other people. I mean, the stuff about jailing Hillary Clinton is is a perfect example, where if you listen to anything Republicans say, or what they're saying to James Comey, for instance, I think, Matt, you were the one who pointed this out on the weeds a couple weeks ago. If you listen to Republicans attacking James Comey for not doing his job, it is clear that what they are saying is Hillary Clinton committed a crime and should be in jail. They don't usually quite say that, but but that's exactly what that implies. The Republican base is hearing that. They're hearing it um, filtered through talk radio and filtered through Fox News and filtered through Breitbart. So the understanding they have is that a criminal who knowingly put American national security at risk in order to hide what she was really doing from the American people and who deleted 33,000 emails showing presumably the most scandalous stuff, possibly including Benghazi. Um, is now going to be president. And, and if that's what you hear, yeah, it makes total sense. Like that, this this is a rigging. This is a, a totally dangerous, disastrous election. And you need to do whatever you can to stop it. These are our passions the Republican Party unleashes in its base for short-term political gain and is now finding that it is unable to control them and they are leading to long-term political loss. I, I think this is actually <laughs> a, a good moment to pivot to someone who um, really – does understand where all the lines are and plans out what she's doing in a, in a very careful, very deliberate way. And that's Hillary Clinton, who, you know, I think is not the greatest stump speaker in the history of American politics um, and is in some ways not a particularly well-liked politician, but is extremely well-versed in what it is she is doing and who it's easy to sort of mock the level of preparation and the like 90-person email threads going into the writing and timing of a tweet. But who I think, you know, you you, you wrote about this this last night, Ezra, but like we've seen that that pays off, right? That there is something a little um, less awesome about a candidate who is clearly very focused on like preparation, gaming out scenarios, thinking things through, uh, but it's actually quite effective. There's a reason why many times in life people try to practice and plan and rehearse and consult with a wide range of people about what they should do and and make their, make their marks out. And it has really, um, it, over the course of these debates, like worked for her. She has done better than I think any general election candidate in the history of of debating in terms of moving the poll numbers. And it gives the impression of really having flowed from a plan. Yeah. So she – it is worth just saying that Hillary Clinton over three debates has left the Trump campaign in ruins. Uh, on the eve of the first debate, Clinton and Trump were almost tied. She was a little bit ahead. Now on the – Third, she is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly ahead in the in the race and the Republican hold on the Senate is in danger. The Republican hold on the House might be in danger. It's a lot harder to know, but some polls suggest it is. That is really not normal. If you look at the political science evidence on debates, they actually just very rarely move the polls. And in fact, and I thought this was so fascinating, the debate series that moved the polls the most was Carter Ford. That debate is series is known for having this massive Ford gaffe where he said that I think it was Poland is not under the control of the Soviet Union. All of Eastern Europe. All of Eastern Europe. And it was. And then the moderator said, are you sure you want to say that? Last chance, call a friend. And he said, absolutely. That is exactly what I meant. But the debates moved the polls towards Ford. Carter went in with a big lead and came out with a very small one. So 
it is very rare for debates to, to move the polls in the way, and they did here. And I, I think that the way people tend to absorb this is that Hillary Clinton is lucky to have a terrible candidate running against her, that Hillary Clinton is herself flawed and weak, but she is boosted by having this even more flawed, even weaker candidate. But what I think that does forget is that Hillary Clinton, through preparation, through planning, through her own caution and care, and to some degree through a, a savvy use of Donald Trump's weaknesses and her own gender, has driven Donald Trump crazy in every single debate, that everyone has followed the same pattern where she spends the first 30 minutes needling him till he completely loses his shit and leaves behind presidential, slow-talking, calming Donald Trump and goes into needled, angry, confrontational Trump. Last night, eventually, in a dispute about social security, he's, he interrupted her to say, you are such a nasty woman, which he just – he can't he, – she's able to make him just totally lose it. She sprung the Alicia Machado trap on him in the first debate, which led to – which began really the conversation about the way he spoke to and treated women. It created the context in which the 2005 Access Hollywood tape came out. It was back context for then the, the women coming forward and saying he sexually harassed them. It also sent Trump into a, like a, just a spin of hysteria. He spent the whole next night up all night tweeting that people should check out a sex tape that didn't exist. He then spent a bunch of time organizing three accusers of Bill Clinton to come before the next debate and do a press conference with him, which was just a totally maniacal strategy that had nothing to do with how he could win. Um, he needed to be practicing for the debate and finding Hillary Clinton's weaknesses. Instead, he just wanted to humiliate her in turn. So she is really um, – and also in every debate, she has managed to not make any mistakes. She's managed to give clear answers that showed a, a very large preparation and knowledge gap with Trump. It's been a pretty command performance. It has had a huge effect on the polls. And I think it's been a little bit hard to appreciate because – it's really been Hillary Clinton maneuvering Trump into a place where he would detonate and, and lose the debates terribly, as opposed to the kind of thing we're used to judging, which is Hillary Clinton just doing a, an awesome job. But for all that, I think that gets looked at as inevitable. Remember, Trump became the Republican nominee by out-debating a 16-person field that included many politicians who were considered the most talented Republican politicians in a generation. And while it's true that one-on-one -on -one debates are, are different than multi-candidate debates, he was a good showman. And, and even towards the end, when it was just him and Rubio and Kasich, he did not get creamed in those in, in those clashes. So there are him and Cruz in, in Kasich, I'm sorry. Um, so there was something really going on here. And I think Clinton deserves a lot more credit for it than she gets. Yeah, I... I go back and forth on this, and I think it's kind of a bummer that Clinton gets graded on a curve. And if you look at economic information, like a generic Republican should win this debate. Like, and you almost saw, and we've talked about this before, like kind of some moments of generic Republican of like Trump coming out in the debates, especially in like the early parts where you could kind of see like what it would be like if you had like a Marco Rubio up there on stage. And I think you're totally right, Ezra, that Clinton went into these debates in a strategic way that is not especially appreciated. The Alicia Machado moment stands out to me especially because it felt, I think it was hard to pull off because there was no right moment to do it. And Clinton <laughs> just like, was like, here's a thing I'm going to say and put out there. And it would, I could see it feeling very weird and like making a strategic decision in the debate. Like it didn't come up. Like there was mm -hmm. like no moment for it. And she had a very clear sense of like, yes, this is going to feel weird in the moment, but I know exactly what I'm going to do. And it clearly was so thought out yeah. in a way that 
I think it would have been easier to skip in a way to say, like, well, maybe we'll save that for the next debate. Maybe we'll just put out these ads and, like, push it in that way. It was high risk. It was high risk. Yeah. Um, but something like I, – I, I imagine as we get more of these emails, there's probably, like, thousands of emails about, like, this particular thing <laughs> and how they wanted to do it and what the plan was. So it, clearly, like, Clinton has a skill at debating. At the same time, there's so many buttons to push with Trump that, like, it gets me kind of into the grading on a curve mindset – when I think about the, what other candidate could you so clearly see his the ways he gets aggravated, the ways like you wrote, he gets so upset when you use his first name, that there are such clear ways you can push him into these into these moments that just look terrible for him that are not true with most most politicians that I, I think also is a, is a benefit of debating him later in the cycle where you're able to really like watch his personality come out, like watch the things that set him off. He's he's an easier candidate to to set off than than others would be. And I don't think that negates Hillary's skills as a debater. But at the same time, it definitely it changes the dynamic of what she's doing. It changes how the moves that she is using in debate are, are much more successful against a candidate like him than other candidates she might have debated. So, you know, one, one thing that I think sort of confuses the, the issue a, a little bit here is like one question is, is, you know, is Hillary Clinton a strong candidate for office, right? Like when you just look on paper, like at the fundamentals, like is this who the Democrats would want to run? And, and I think the answer to that is, is no, that she is a, a relatively poor choice on paper, that something that uh, her allies like to say about her is that she's the best qualified candidate uh, we've ever had. Um, another way of saying that is voters really despise super experienced <laughs> professional politicians who are part of a system that is viewed as deeply corrupt and hateful, and that a good candidate would be like a normal presidential candidate, a governor with five or six years of experience who is going to say a lot of nonsense about how I'm going to come clean up the system in, in Washington, right? And, and Democrats, I think, would be much better off with a, a candidate like that, someone 20 years younger, way less qualified, all that other kind of stuff. On the other hand, given that Hillary Clinton is who she is, I think she displays an extraordinarily high skill level, right, in, in working with what she's got. And I think the ultimate example of, of Hillary Clinton as, a, as an underrated, uh, skillful political player is her 2000 Senate race, right? If you want to think about, okay, we have an open Senate seat in a super blue state, and I would like to represent that state in the Senate. And my problems include, A, I'm not an elected official at all. B, I don't live in the state and never have. <laughs> that's a really – that's not great, you know, um, from from fundamental standpoint. But she pulled it off, right? And then she goes up against, against Rick Lazio and, and she wins. And I think if you look at the margin in that race, you'd say, OK, a Democrat running in a presidential election year in New York, she actually kind of underperformed the, the margin that you would expect because – did she run ahead or behind of Gore, actually? She, she ran behind Gore uh -huh. um, because she was not a good candidate. She, she was not a, a strong selection for that office, but she was an extraordinarily skilled politician. You know, uh, she had th this 
to get the uh, endorsement at all, right? I mean, she had to get uh, Andrew Cuomo, who is currently uh, governor of New York, but at the time was HUD secretary, and Carl McCall, who I think was the uh, comptroller of the state. She had to get them to both decide that neither of them wanted a crack at this open Senate seat, that they were instead going to run against each other (laughs) in a uh, gubernatorial race two years in the future, right? When like a normal thing to do would be for state power brokers to be like, hey, guys, instead of a hugely destructive primary, how about one of you runs for this open sentency, right? But you had to, like, work machination so that Charlie Rangel was out there and meet the press. And he was like, I don't know. I think Hillary Clinton would make a good senator. And she did this listening tour shtick. I mean, it was, it was really hard. I, I'm a New Yorker. I, I was living there in the state at the time. And I, and I remember people thinking, you know, Democrat, liberal people who were like, OK, look, if Hillary Clinton's the nominee, I'm going to vote for her. I'm not a Republican. But like, this is weird. Something <laughs> weird is happening. Uh, but in the end, nobody ran against her for the nomination, um, which is a good way to win. Uh, just as she won in the in the Democratic primary. I mean, we think now about her like battles with Bernie Sanders. But like the real victory in that primary was that like no real candidates emerged against her at all. Uh, When Bernie Sanders wound up having more grassroots fundraising than people had thought was possible, she had, you know, some struggles here and there. Um, But she really prevented, you know, anyone else from picking up any steam. She locked down all the interest group endorsements. Poor Martin O'Malley was out there, was like, hey, guys, you know, I'm pretty liberal, but just like nobody (laughs) noticed him. and that's like a Joe a, Biden didn't run. Right. Joe Biden didn't run, didn't didn't take a whack at it. And like that is all part of politics, right? And like the little part where like you stand on a stage in a rally and try to get people to cheer is like that is part of politics too, but it's it's very much just like the the tip of the iceberg, right? And she's really good at all that under the surface stuff. People don't like that particularly, right? It's it's part of why I think she does not have a great favorable rating is that like, aha, she's like a shady master of pulling the strings and like getting nominations through uh, means that are unclear to people. <laughs> Doesn't like, it's not as exciting as hope and change, but like it's a it's a real thing. And I think it, it probably indicates that she will um, like have a better chance of getting things done as an actual president uh, because actual presidenting involves a lot of backroom maneuvering and relatively little, you know, getting people to clap. Yeah. And as you say, like, I think that the particular skills she has are more relevant to the presidency than the than the skills that we tend to prize in in campaigns. Her, her skills in communication are weaker than her skills in implementation and coalition building and in preparation. And all that stuff is it's genuinely important. But the only thing that I really want to say on, on the Trump thing is that as weak a candidate as he was, and it's hard for us to to game out, you know, what it would have been like if Ted Cruz had won the nomination or something. But as weak a candidate as he is, it wasn't preordained that he would end up so abnormalized. Um, he wasn't in this space six weeks ago. I mean, you can go back and look at the polls. And the you know, the stu- he was being treated as kind of a a weird Republican, but a, you know, normal one. And he was holding it together. And maybe he would actually, you know, there was that time after Bannon and Conway took over the the campaign and he was, you know, keeping a bit more locked down. And the decision to drive him crazy and the successful execution of that strategy, I just, I think that was really hard. I, I think that that was a lot of debate prep and a lot of knowing exactly where she was going to go with any move he made and a lot of knowing like which traps he would spring and, and, and when. I just think that, that one of the things 
One thing that really does matter in the presidency is preparation and planning. I mean, there is just a lot that you have to do to try to understand what you are going to do if X happens. And also you need to be walking into X with so much knowledge that you're able to change the game plan on the fly. And so in, in the sense that you're looking at these events, not as gladiatorial sports, but as some kind of evidence of what kind of president these folks will be. I do think that a lot of the 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 traits she's showing, the ability to identify, you know, weaknesses and then on the other side in the nomination stuff, the the, you know, strengths or or, or places for for alliance in folks she needs to um, either win over or beat. And then the ability to to plan that out, to exit to find a strategy, to execute the strategy, it 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 speaks to something. She's very good and her operation is very good at figuring out the people that they need to to move on and where they need to move them on the board and then getting it done. It, it's it's a real skill. And I think you you see this too in like very understated ways in having a base, which is something we don't talk a lot about. I really liked Matt's piece on this a few days ago on the silent majority. Hillary Clinton has supporters. You do not read about them as much in newspapers. It, we've done so much. And I think this is true of Vox as well. We write a lot about Trump supporters. We wrote mm-hmm. a lot about Bernie supporters. And one of the things I wonder about, I, I, Trump supporters, I think, to a lot of us who are in the media, who live in D.C., who live in New York, are, are something we don't know as much personally. Like, they live in areas of the country that we do not live in. Their views are not as prevalent to the places we live. And we write a lot about Trump supporters. And I don't think that was bad. I think you know, Trump was a surprising candidate. And there was a lot of value in understanding who are the people who support him. There are lots of Hillary Clinton supporters. You just do not hear as much from them. They tend to be less vocal. Um, Jessica Bennett wrote a great article for the New York Times this summer about all these secret Hillary Clinton groups on Facebook. Because this summer, if you started a Hillary Clinton group on Facebook, you would have a bunch of Bernie bros in it, like yelling at you about why you don't support Bernie. And I think this was really true. And like, I felt this dynamic in um, 2008 when like Obama was this hip candidate and it was super weird and stodgy to support Hillary. And like, again, we went through this in 2016. And it's easy to Hillary, Cl- Hillary Clinton's base isn't as vocal. They're like not out there on Facebook, like, you know, shouting down Trump supporters, shouting down Bernie supporters in the way they are constantly getting shouted down. But But just because they're quiet doesn't mean they don't vote and that they are not a base that has been mobilized and reached out to. And I, I just it strikes me as a parallel to to the debates in that there are these different ways that Hillary Clinton has run her campaign that are they're different from how we normally think about successful campaigns. They're different in how we think about mobilization. But that doesn't mean they're unsuccessful or that they're not happening. They're just happening in a way that we're not as used to covering. I also think there's a there's a weird phenomenon of um, the sort of class structure of America's major cities in play, whereas I think, you know, if as a sort of upper middle class professional journalist, you say to your editor, you want to travel to southwestern Ohio and report on what white working class voters there tell you and think, you can like do that. Like your editor might okay it. You can write it up. You can you can print it in, in your newspaper, on your website. It seems like a credible story. If you say, oh, I'm going to go like to Starbucks and I'm going to ask the barista uh, on P Street, you know, like what does she think? And I'm going to talk to the nannies at the park um, and I'm going to talk to just like some guys, you know, three metro stations down. That sounds like dumb. 
right? Like, we don't need to, like, send a reporter, quote-unquote, to, like, Washington, D.C. We're here already. Um, But it's a very different world, you know? And and there just have been so few stories throughout this entire election season about the views of working-class people of color, you know, who Mm -hmm. voted overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton in the primary, who have a very favorable view of Barack Obama, who are voting overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton in the general election, who have economic problems, just like white working class people, you know, who also, I'm sure, would love good paying factory jobs to magically reappear from China, but who have a very different uh, viewpoint about the election and a different viewpoint about America, and in particular, do not have the nostalgia-tinged viewpoint about America that is shared by um, Donald Trump's rhetoric and by the rhetoric you hear from the sort of Bernie Elizabeth Warren wing of of Democrats. I, I don't like to make sort of pat false equivalences between those strains of of nostalgic populism. And if you um, uh, read an Elizabeth Warren speech about how much better things were in the old days, there's always a part that she puts in about how, of course, not everything was better. And, you know, how, like, it's good that women have jobs and that gay people can get married and, and blah, blah, blah. But the point of the speech is still that the American middle class has been trampled for two generations. Um, And that is not the emotional attitude that normal uh, uh, African-American, Latino, LGBT, uh, et cetera, people have toward changes in American life over the past generation or two. Um, and and the Clinton-Obama voters, by the same token, they don't necessarily disagree that like some of the trends in median household income and stuff are 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 bad but you you do kind of just like in your gut have to decide like is america in 2016 like better or worse than it was in in 1986 and like clinton's core vote is people who think that it is better they see more diversity in the cabinet in the senate somewhat more in in corporate america more uh you know on television more you know a growing acceptance uh, in society of of a wider range of people and when they see problems, they are interested in Hillary's slightly dull transactional solutions to them because they don't feel that America is fundamentally broken in that kind of Trumpy way. Speaking of no, this is actually <laughs> like, not like I was that. waiting for the transition here. <laughs> no, I did. I, actually, I, I, I this was not like this. Um, but H- Hillary Clinton addressed uh, abortion rights in. The debate, and she did so, I think, in a way that is not what we typically sort of associate with Hillary Clinton type rhetoric. It wasn't like, he, yeah, right. I mean, it 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 seemed unusually impassioned for right. a politician addressing well, uh, abortion rights, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to normally, Hillary, when she talks about an issue, it kind of seems like how most Democrats would talk about it, but like maybe like turned down one notch. But this was like turned up a couple of <laughs> Yeah, it was. Well, the whole thing was surprising. I, I think there, there's been throughout the debate, there's not been any questions about abortion. This was the first and only question. There was frustration among us, particularly among pro-choice advocates. They wanted the topic to come up. I, I think there's an expectation it wouldn't even come up in this debate, that it just was not going to happen. So first there was the surprise of getting the actual question out there. And then, as you mentioned, Matt, it, 
I thought Clinton was especially passionate and, you know, emotional on this issue in a way that you do not see in a lot of um, a lot of her debate performance, a lot of the ways, like you said, she kind of is usually dialed down a little bit. Particularly your answer on late-term abortions was one where she um, felt like very genuine and personal. So you had Hillary Clinton, you know, who seemed very eager to talk about this in a way that politicians often aren't and that they, they see abortion as a divisive issue. Um, particularly late-term abortion, I think, is something that is very hard for Democrats to talk about. Um, most voters oppose late-term abortion. And it's just a hard area to um, – to be an advocate for um, the reasons why you might want to allow late-term abortions. On the other side, we had Donald Trump, who um, talked about abortions at nine months happening the day of um, their due date or the day before, um, saying that Hillary Clinton was advocating for babies to be ripped out of their womb at that point, which, um, just to state here, nine-month abortions are are not a thing. Those do not happen um, if you— take a baby out of the womb in the nine months, it is either a C-section, a birth, or if you are going to kill that infant, that is infanticide. That is, there was Kermit Gosnell, a doctor in Philadelphia who was an abortion provider who was sentenced for murder because if you take a baby out of the womb at nine months and kill it, like that is that is murder, that is manslaughter. And that is not what Hillary Clinton was advocating for. And it was, it was a Again, I think this thing we see from Trump again and again in the debates where he knew the outlines of the topic that Republicans oppose late-term abortion, but just went a step further, went to abortions at the latest possible moment, which is something that no Republicans, no Democrats, no abortion providers would ever advocate for. I think this was a place where something that is a little bit hard to talk about in this election really came clear, which is that There's a lot of talk about how it is historic to have potentially the first woman president. But I think it's a little bit harder for people to talk about what that might mean. And I I think you saw some of what it might mean at, at the debate. Donald Trump and I think a lot of male politicians in general speak, spoke and speak about abortion very abstractly. It's very much a, a kind of an, an intellectual issue, a moral issue, but it isn't spoken of as a like a like a live possibility in in life in their lives. Hillary Clinton really spoke about abortion as someone who has like talked to her friends about it, as someone who like has come into contact with a lot of people who have who have struggled with this. I, I mean, I don't know anything about her personal history. Here, but but there was a a realness to it when she talked about partial birth abortion. It was really fascinating because this is something Democrats wouldn't touch back in the day. But she did not just back down on it. She went like straight forward and said, basically, how dare you imagine? I mean, putting aside the question of whether a nine month abortion happens, because as you say, it doesn't. What Trump seemed to be implying was that there was someone somewhere who would just cavalierly, casually do that for no reason. That that's what late-term abortion was about, that it was some kind of um, like easy decision, that, that it was made cavalierly. It, it was so baffling. And it's what Hillary Clinton was saying, that the people who have late-term abortions, it is the most agonizing kind of choice that you can imagine. It's somebody whose child will not be able to breathe outside of the womb. And so the question is, are you going to have a, a child who, when they are born, they immediately die? And will you bring that child and go through birth with that child? And she, I think, brought a real um, humanity and complexity and just empathy to that debate that you just very rarely hear uh, in national politics. The other interesting thing was just tracking 
really how far the Democratic Party has changed on this. And you sometimes hear the Republican parties become more ideologically um, pure and, and that the Democratic Party has not done that as much. But here was a place where I think you see the Democratic Party on social issues really has moved. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton was safe, legal and rare. Um, there, there was also a long period of time, particularly there in the 80s and 90s, when you had a lot of uh, politicians who opposed abortion, who were Democrats, saw it as a, as a sin, but wanted it legal anyway, you know, just in case. Hillary Clinton really gave a full-throated defense of it, mm-hmm. that, that this was a woman's right to choose and she should be able to exercise that choice. It, it was in those ways, I thought, a very different moment for this issue. So I, I partially agree with that, where there was a willingness to talk about late-term abortion. One way it didn't feel full-throated, I think this is something that comes up in um, abortion politics, is the cases Clinton wanted to talk about are the case are these really tragic cases where the baby isn't going to survive, where mm-hmm. there's some like birth defect or some reason why why they cannot carry it to term, that it is for their health or life. One thing they didn't engage on is elective abortion. Mm-hmm. And most of most abortions in the United States are not these cases where the baby can't survive. Most of them happen very early in pregnancy and, and they happen because someone wants to terminate right. yeah, yeah. But a pregnancy. Not, partial birth abortion is, as I understand it, more tilted towards health reasons. Or am I wrong about that? No, no, you're right. Well, it doesn't happen anymore. So partial, right, yeah, yeah. to clarify, yeah, now partial birth abortion is a um, term that was given to a particular abortion procedure. Mm-hmm. So it outlawed a certain way that abortion providers used to end pregnancy um, in the second trimester. It did not outlaw at a specific time. So it was more about procedure. But it, the only there's a lot of talk about situations where abortion is necessary. And I think those are ones where it's almost easier for Democrats. It is late term, but it's easier to talk about. It's easier, it's easier to sympathize with someone who has no choice but to end a pregnancy. One place where you didn't have as much discussion was elective abortion, mm-hmm. which is what most abortion is in the United States. It's people deciding that now is not the right time for them to have a child and terminating a pregnancy. And in a weird way, even though that is earlier in pregnancy, that's an area where when you look at polling, um, Americans tend to be less conflicted. There tends to be more support. There's still less talk of, well, what about women who want to end pregnancies? Like, how do we feel about them? Right. I mean, there's, I, I think there's like sort of two dimensions of it, right? And so one is just as a as a legal question, there's more support for restricting late-term abortions than, than early-term abortions because the, the status of, of the fetus is seen differently. But when you talk about judgment of the person, right? I think what Clinton did when you talk about sort of medically necessary or, or semi-necessary abortions, it creates a very a very sort of sympathetic woman, whereas people take a harsher view of someone who has sex, uses perhaps an ineffective birth control method, becomes pregnant, sees that in a pregnancy test, decides she doesn't want to have a baby and goes and gets an abortion. But that's the vast majority of of abortions in the United States are unplanned pregnancies that you decide are unwanted pregnancies and that are terminated fairly early and in the in the course of the pregnancy for this sort of banal but very real reason that having a baby is like a big life-altering responsibility that many people uh, do not want at a time that was not of their choosing. And it is very rare I think to see a Democrat making the the case for the sort of legitimacy of that course of action, even though there's 
if if people didn't feel that it was a legitimate course of action, you wouldn't see so much of it happening, right? Like the, the, it's it's like like the real world of abortions is something that people are a little. It seems like a little embarrassed to talk about. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I would add, though, the abortion rate is going down just to keep our negativity bias restrained that you do have fewer abortions now than any other I mean, we, point we be, have in because record. Un- but it is very pregnancies com- are going Unplanned down. pregnancies right. are going down. Abortions are going down. But it is a common experience. Um, and one the, we've done a lot of survey research on abortion with um, the polling firm Perry Undum. And one of the things, surpri- interesting findings we find is that people – People who support abortion are much more likely to know someone who's had an abortion. Um, uh, My interpretation of this is that those people are more likely to have someone talk to them about abortion. You'd probably be more prone to go to someone who you know is is supportive of abortion and tell them your story. Not that people who support abortion are also having more abortions, although we don't have like a great way to figure that out. Um, It's kind of this interesting space. Late term abortion has come to take in the debate. On the one hand, it's like a very hard space to talk about. It's a place where most people oppose elective abortion. I think a lot of Democrats would oppose elective abortion. And once you get into the Roe framework, um, there's there's no elective abortion in the third trimester. It is only for the life or health of the mother. There is not an abortion provider who you can see in this country and walk into, you know, 36, 38 weeks pregnant and say, like, I would like to terminate this pregnancy because I have decided I no longer want to be pregnant, who, you know, would terminate that pregnancy without it being a criminal act, like what Kermit Gosnell was doing in Philadelphia. Um, and so in a weird way, these controversial cases at the end of pregnancy are also an area where there is is some agreement. And I think that is what Clinton was actually able to to leverage in a way that's been been difficult for Democrats historically. But, you know, by, by the same token, right? I mean, when she talks about how extreme some of the state laws have become, she says, well, they're defunding Planned Parenthood and Planned Parenthood does these good cancer screenings and stuff, um, which it certainly does. Um, but another thing they do at Planned Parenthood is abortions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and presumably they do those abortions I mean, I, I know the reason they perform abortions at Planned Parenthood clinics is because they believe it's important that people be able to get abortions if they want them, right? I mean, if they if what Planned Parenthood, if all they wanted to do was cancer screenings, they could duck this whole political controversy by giving in, uh, but they don't want to give in, right? Um, and And I do see an enormous reluctance by Democratic Party politicians to, like, actually defend the thing that is being defended there, which is like not that we would, you know, which is that like it is a good thing that there is a network of clinics that provide end to end reproductive health services, including abortions. And some of that, I think, is a slightly odd side consequence of the safe, legal and rare rhetoric becoming a little derogated that, you know, part of point of that rhetoric, I think, was to say that, like, look, genuinely nobody thinks that, like, the, a great outcome is an unplanned pregnancy followed by an abortion, right? I mean, there's a lot of vehement disagreement about whether it's acceptable for an unplanned pregnancy to end in an abortion rather than a birth, but it's nobody's, like, best case scenario, right? And it, the abortion rate is falling for the same reasons the teen birth rate is falling. We have fewer unplanned pregnancies. People are using more effective forms of contraception. And there, like, is a real 
agenda that you can construct around that kind of stuff um, that, you know, Planned Parenthood is supportive of, that I think Hillary Clinton is supportive of, but that does get you into the the sort of mushy compromise Bill Clinton mid-90s rhetoric that, that Democrats have, have started backing away from. All right. Weeds. <laughs> Again. What are All we right, going to do post-debates? Go back to the back to policy? fun policy weeds instead of yes. these ugh, debate I'm really looking recaps. forward to talking about Hillary Clinton's corporate tax repatriation. We got a lot to talk about, and we will be talking about that. But for now, there's been another episode of The Weeds. Thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro. Uh, the Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back next week. 